My name is Tamara Gober, and I'd like to personally welcome you to the Hope Community Podcast. Before we begin, if you live in the New York City area and are looking for a church home, I'd like to take this time to invite you to our services. For time and place, check out our website, hopecommunitynyc.com. Again, thanks for listening. We hope you are encouraged by this message, and we truly pray you walk away looking more like Jesus. Welcome back, everyone. Um, We are going to be uh, continuing our Advent series. So this is kind of cool. This is a a season of Advent. And if you are um, familiar, like I did not practice uh, the tradition of Advent growing up. Like in the church that I was in, whenever I started going to church around middle school, we never, ever, it wasn't until I moved here that people were like, oh yeah, what are you guys doing for Advent season? And I was like, I gotta Google what Advent is. Like, I don't know what that is, right? That's so weird because I've never, I mean, I've heard the word Advent, but I just didn't know what it meant. And, uh, and then come to find out there's this huge tradition in the church that has been going through what is called a season of Advent. And last week I talked to you guys a little bit about how Advent just means waiting, right? And how like the whole reason it's called Advent is because it's leading up to the birth of Christ. It's everyone's in waiting up to the birth of Christ. And so we take four weeks, uh, traditionally what churches do is they take four weeks to lead up to talking about the birth of Christ during Christmas. And that season is called Advent. Well, uh, this is our fourth year, fifth year of Christmas. Fourth year of Christmas, okay. And we didn't start doing Advent until actually 2021. And then I figured it out. I was, it is our fifth year, yeah, of being here, Christmas. Okay, okay. Um, but in 2021 is, not, is whenever we started doing Advent. So if you're a pastor and you're trying to figure out um, like what to preach on, which is a thing you gotta, gotta do, uh, you know, it's part of the trade. <laughs> but you, you try to figure out, like there are certain seasons that come and you're like, okay, what do we do? Because like Easter shows up, right? And you're supposed to preach on what? The resurrection. I don't, <clears throat> 2000 years ago, Jesus, uh, where do we need to start here? Yes. The resurrection is, is where, you, now the thing is, is every time the resurrection or Easter comes up, you're like, okay, how can I teach the resurrection uh, in a way that's fresh, right? Like new, Newsflash, it's the same. Like the resurrection is the same every single year. And I actually heard a long time ago, um, somebody who put ease into my spirit whenever I'm freaking out about, okay, what do I now preach on? It's Advent season now, what are we gonna preach on? Oh no, it's, it's Christmas, what are we gonna preach on? Oh no, it's Easter, what are we gonna preach on? One guy said this and it was amazing. He said, the resurrection and the birth of Christ are two wells that never run dry, ever. And I was like, amen to that. Because it doesn't. Anytime we talk about the resurrection, that's key in our faith. Anytime we talk about the birth of Jesus Christ, that's key in our faith. And during this Advent season, I was thinking to myself, okay, what, what are we going to necessarily talk about? Because Christmas, you're able to, you know, kind of talk about different areas of Christmas. So the last couple of years, we talked about, um, specifically, we talked about peace, or we talked about hope, then we talked about peace, then we talked about joy, and then we talked about love. Those are the four words that are associated with the Advent season. So for this year, I was like, well, 
what we can do is we can maybe um, kind of have the candles, uh, but maybe we don't preach on those things. Maybe uh, we preach on something else. And so I'm talking to my wife and, and uh, she often helps me out. And, uh, and I was like, what should we do? And she said, why don't we do a character study like on you know, the people of the Christmas story. And I was like, that's a really good idea. She was like, you could talk about Joseph. You could talk about Mary. You could talk about Jesus. And that will be those three weeks because we knew John was going to come preach the first week. So we were like, all right, so we'll have three weeks and we'll talk about those things. So we thought, you know, at first, um, okay, well, whenever John comes, all I told him was, is I told him, I said, he said, what do you want me to preach on? I said, I'm going to trust the Lord with that but here's a prompt if you need it. I said, preach to, preach as if you were preaching to a bunch of missionaries who work really hard, who see little fruit. That's what I told him to preach on. And he said, got it. And what did he bring last week? He brought a message of hope. Just happened to be the first, the first week of Advent. And that was his message. What happens, you remember what he said? What happens when the hope givers need hope. And that set the tone for his entire message. We had worship last week all set up around hope. And then he came and he gave us a message about hope, about the fingerprints of God. And I was like, man, that, that's how God works right there. So then I'm preparing. I'm like, all right, so these next weeks, we're going to talk about Joseph. We're going to talk about Mary. We're going to talk about Christ. And as I was looking through and as I was studying what about, you know, I wanted to talk about with each of these people, there, there were certain words that kept coming up with these people. God writes this stuff. It's crazy. And, and so I'm studying Mary and I'm looking at the life of Mary. And you know what word continuously comes up whenever you're studying the person of Mary? It starts with a J. Joy. I was like, whoa. That's pretty cool. Do you know what word continually comes up whenever you're doing a study on Jesus? Love. Love. Do you know what word continuously, continuously comes up whenever you're doing a, a, a study on Joseph? No, it's chaos. His life is crazy. <laughs> His life is nuts, all right? Like, he, I'm serious. Like, I was like, look at God, Mary, Joy, look at God. And then I was like, Jesus in love. Oh, so I started looking into Joseph and I was like, ain't nothing peaceful about this guy. <laughs> like, nothing peaceful about this guy's life. And in fact, his life could be defined as chaos, like whenever you look at it, and that's what we're going to look at today, is we're going to look at his life of chaos. But here's what I want to do, because I do think that God means for us to find peace. I truly believe that. And so what I want to talk to you guys about today is finding joy or finding peace, excuse me, in the middle of chaos. Finding peace amidst chaos. That's what we're going to talk about today. And we're going to look at Joseph, Joseph's life. And we're going to go, man, you've been through it. You've been through a lot. He went through a whole, whole lot, all right? And I think that his life is a good example for us. I think his life is a good example for anyone who has surrendered their life to the will of God. If you have surrendered your life to the will of God, then you can identify, my guess is, with Joseph, all right? And so we're going to look at three instances of chaos in Joseph's life. And we're going to look at how God uses that because raise your hand if you've ever experienced some sort of chaos in your life, right? Some of you guys are like, I just walked in from it. Actually just walked in from a lot of chaos. Yeah. No, I, trust me. I understand that. But here's the thing. Can we, can we find peace in it? 
Can we find peace amidst the chaos? Let's look at this, all right? So, you guys, are, you guys understand that chaos in our lives is inevitable. Like, you can't avoid it, all right? You cannot walk, you guys know very well as New Yorkers, you can't walk out of your apartment without finding some sort of, being confronted with some sort of chaos, right? I can't sit in my living room with our terrible windows that are not insulated at all and it, without, without hearing some sort of chaos outside my street, like on the outside. And I'm just like, man, this is all around. This is all around us all the time. But here's the thing. Chaos is always going to be a part of our lives because it's a result of living in a fallen world. Chaos is a result of living in a fallen world. But what's amazing about our God is that he uses fallen things for our good and for his glory. He uses those fallen things, all right? So, number one, let's look at it. Go to Matthew chapter one, verse 18. We'll have it on the screen for you, but if you want to uh, follow along in your Bible or on your phone, you can. Matthew chapter one. If you guys aren't aware, Matthew kind of talks about the story of Joseph. Luke talks more about Mary. So as we're uh, looking at the story of Joseph today, we are going to be in Matthew. We are going to skip over to Luke for a second, and then we're going to skip back over to Matthew. But first, let's look at what's going on in Joseph's life. We do not know a whole lot about this guy. This is somebody in the Bible that we really have very limited information on. In fact, you probably don't hear much talk about Joseph. I don't know about Bible studies that have been written about him or any of that kind of stuff. He's kind of this just kind of person who comes on the scene and then he's gone, right? So what, what is it that we can really learn from his life? Uh, it's kind of amazing um, how much he actually went through. Look at verse 18, Matthew chapter 1, verse 18. It says this, Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother, Mary, had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, you can ask your parents what that means, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband, Joseph, being a just man, some of your, some of your translation might say a righteous man, and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he, was, he will save his people from their sins. Now, if you're just reading that, you're going, oh, okay, like he heard about that, and then he was like, okay, well, I guess I'm going to have to divorce my wife or my soon-to-be wife. They're betrothed, betrothed in this moment, all right? And you might just skip right over that. But guys, pause for a moment, because if you will stop for a second and you will consider what happens between verse 18 and 19, it's gotta be chaotic. It has to be chaotic. Because it wasn't, Mary didn't come to Joseph and just say, hey, uh, I don't know how to tell you this, uh, but I'm pregnant. And the Holy Spirit is the one. And like the Lord came over me and I am, and I'm pregnant. And it's like, okay, what does that mean exactly? Like if you're Joseph in that moment, you're going, that sounds, you could have come up with a better lie. You know what I'm saying? Like you could have come up with a better story uh, than that. But here's the thing. 
Like it wasn't like in that moment he got mad and decided I'm going to divorce you, which by the way, that lets us know a little bit about what the culture was like then. They were not married. They were betrothed. All right. And, but what does it say though? It says that he decided to divorce her. So it tells you that back then, fiancés and engagements, they were seen a little bit more serious than they are today. Today, an engagement breaks off. It's like, ah, no harm, no foul. Yes, there's some pain that is involved in that. But back then in the Jewish culture, if you were betrothed to someone, you were basically seen as married. And the only way that you could get out of that is divorce. And the only reason that you could have for divorce is unfaithfulness. That's the only reason. All right. So, what do we know about Joseph from what was just said here? What do we know about him? We only really know one thing, that he is a what? Righteous man. That's all we really know about him in this moment. So what does that word mean? What does that word righteous man mean? Well, it means that, that it's the same way that God describes Abraham as a righteous man. Like what made Abraham righteous? It was his faith. What makes Joseph a righteous man? Well, it's his faith. So God's telling us something about Joseph in that moment, that he is a man of God, that he is considered righteous, not because of anything that he had done, not because Joseph was trusting in the law to save him or anything like that. The reason that Joseph was found to be righteous is because he has a great faith in the Lord. That means that he has a great trust in the Lord. That means that that he's a very, very godly man. And godly people do godly things. And whenever Joseph is approached from Mary in this moment, you can imagine the gravity of what was just told to him. Like his life is about to be changed. His life is about to be flipped upside down. And Joseph in that moment, I truly believe that this righteous man stepped back from the moment. He listened to Mary. He listened to Mary and he was like, okay, I hear the story. And then at some point he had to have walked away and he had to have gone and he had to have thought about this and he had to pray about this. Why? Because the reaction that he had was too godly of a reaction. It was an incredibly godly reaction. And so you can imagine Joseph stepping away in this moment of just insane chaos. Like everything just changed in his life. This is not what he had planned for his life. This is not what he saw happening. He didn't plan, oh, you know what? I think one day I'm gonna, um, you know, have a fiance and then we're, we, we might get divorced. You don't, like that is a shameful thing in that culture for that to happen. So, Joseph, he, I mean, we can infer a few things. And, and here's the thing. I don't want to like, there are a lot of people who uh, take a lot of liberties at imagining what's going on and they put themselves and their Western culture into the story. And what that causes is for you to not be able to interpret the scripture correctly. So you've got to consider what, who they are. You've got to consider like where they grew up and what their culture is like. And so if you think about this, the, de the decision to divorce Mary is actually a very painful and hard decision. One that's gonna stick with him for a really long time. One that's going to not only stick with him for a really long time, it's also gonna stick with Mary for a really long time. But Joseph in his godliness, in his prayerfulness, in his seeking the Lord, 
He said to, there's no, there's no reason not to think that in his prayer, he was going, Lord, what honors you the most in this decision? And what honors Mary the most in this decision? Because if he divorces her, all right, in that culture, unfaithfulness could be punished by stoning. And so he's got to think about all of this whenever he's thinking about this. But in the end, Joseph steps back and I guarantee he was praying and he was like, Lord, I need you to show me what is true. I need you to show me what is real. And after he prayed through everything, after he sought the Lord, the decision that he made, which I'm sure is a God honoring decision was I have to divorce her. That's going to be what has to happen. But then in his mind, he went, but I don't want to just divorce her and bring, hum and bring just, just humiliate her in front of everybody. I'm gonna do this quietly so that she doesn't have to receive a punishment for this. We'll just kind of make this kind of hush-hush, kind of make this quiet. It's gonna be difficult for Mary because Mary's gonna have to walk around as a pregnant person unwed, right? So that's very, very difficult for her. And so what happens between verse 18 and 19 is insane chaos that had to come into Joseph's life. And he stepped back after weighing everything and he said, the godliest decision I think is to leave her, is to divorce her. Now here's, here's the question that I have, okay? About, about this kind of whole thing. Have you ever wondered why God sent the angel to inform Mary that she would conceive the Messiah by the Holy Spirit, yet withheld that information from Joseph at the beginning, causing him to agonize over what to do about Mary's pregnancy. Isn't that interesting? Before he sends an angel to him, like God allowed him to go through this agonizing process of trying to figure out, like God could have easily easily just said, hey, like you're going to go to Mary. Next stop, you're going to go over to Joseph. You're going to tell him what's going on and everything's going to be okay. No, goes to Mary, right? I mean, it's not like the angel was like, oh shoot, I forgot. Like I just forgot to go over there. The train was late, whatever, got stuck in a tunnel, like, you know, on a bridge, whatever. And, and, and all of a sudden was just, you know, late to the thing. No, like, like God very purposefully waited and let Joseph go through that agonizing torment of trying to make this decision in this moment. Why would he do that? Why would God allow that chaos to happen? He was given that amount of time. So here's the thing that I think. I believe God used it to show Joseph what Ephesians 3.20 says, which is this. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think. Far more abundantly than all, than all we ask or think. You know, that's very, very interesting that God would allow him to go there. And I think it's because Joseph went to the ends of his wits came up with the wrong answer, although seeking the Lord in it. And then God revealed to him what really happened. As if to say, hey, your best thoughts don't even compare to my thoughts. Your best thoughts 
your best effort to make a godly decision in the end, it still shows that, that you're a finite human who can't even fathom the incredible things that God is up to. And guys, I got to think about that for my own life. I got to think about for our, you know, for our own lives. Sometimes we're going through something so incredibly chaotic and, we, and we're asking the Lord and we're like, God, please give me an answer. I'm seeking this. I want to know what the answer is for this. And God's allowing you to agonize through that decision-making process. There are several times in my life that I can remember going through agonizing decision processes and praying through things and thinking that what I was making was the right decision and then God blows everything up and leads me to a different area. And I look back and I go, thank you. Thank you for showing me that you're way bigger than what I could ever imagine, that your ways are so much higher than I could ever imagine. And God takes that chaos and he not only allows it, but he uses it to grow us. So I want us to remember that through that, that God is, God is growing us in our faith. He's magnifying his, himself in our lives through these very, very difficult times. And so what ends up happening is Joseph ends up taking Mary, right, as his wife, because the angel showed up and was like, hey, bro, you're about to make the wrong decision, right? And so, uh, and so Joseph is like, okay, enough said, thank you. I, if I was Joseph, seriously, I'd have been like, you could have come a little bit sooner, thanks so much. But, uh, but hey, right? But here's the thing, Joseph takes Mary as his wife. Now that the angel showed up and told him to do that, does that mean that everything's gonna stop being chaotic for Joseph? No, it doesn't, why? Because what lies ahead of them in the eyes of the culture is not all flowers and roses. Mary is still going to be publicly pregnant before their wedding ceremony. And since Joseph didn't divorce her, everyone is going to assume what? They broke the law of chastity together. That's what everybody's going to assume. So this is going to stay with them. And it's also going to stick with Jesus as well. This is something that I had never seen in scripture before. But as I was studying this, I was like, oh my goodness. This was like one of those verses that I just kind of like glossed over or maybe didn't understand what was being said in that moment. But actually the repercussions from this happening in their culture stayed with Joseph and Mary. And I know that because it stayed with Jesus. Because if you go to John chapter eight, verse 41, which this isn't up on the screen and I apologize for that. Jesus is already well into his ministry and he was debating some Jews on who their true father is, all right? This is whenever Jesus was like kind of letting them have it. He's like, oh no, you know who your real father is. And of course he's talking about Satan right? They're like, no, Abraham. And he's like, no, it's not. Like, I know who your real father is. And they got so mad. Have you ever been like caught in an argument with someone? And then all of a sudden people start throwing insults at each other, right? They threw an insult at Jesus. And this is interesting. And you can, you can look it up. Verse eight or John chapter eight, verse 41. They insulted him by saying, we were not born of sexual immorality. I had never seen that. Why have I never seen that? That, that means that, that what happened and the decision that Joseph and Mary made stuck with them and it hurt their reputation and it stuck with Jesus. These people were accusing him of being born of sexual immorality. 
Can you imagine what Joseph and Mary had to live with in their culture? The shame that they maybe had to live with because of the decisions that the Lord had made for them. The chaos that it brought to their lives because of that, right? Well, then Joseph has another chaotic moment, right? Okay, so he's like, all right, God. I mean, I don't know if he's saying this or not, but if I'm him, I'm going, let's just kind of like relax things a little bit. And let's kind of have some easier things. All right, Lord, I'm praying for peace. I'm praying that you kind of let life be a little bit easier. This is already going to be a very hard pregnancy. Um, you know, so that, that's not what happens. Luke chapter 2, verse 1 through 7, all right? This is how Jesus is born, okay? Chaos, like absolute chaos. It says this, in those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. Very inconvenient. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria, and all went to be registered each to his own town. And where were Joseph and, and Mary supposed to go back to? Starts with a B. You got it. And, and uh, Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth. So that's where they were. They were in Nazareth uh, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David. To be registered with Mary his betrothed, who was with child. So they're still not quite married yet. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. Again, you read that and you're like, okay. But you look deeper into this and you're like, this is insane. Like what they had to deal with in this moment is absolutely insane. Okay, Joseph's Joseph's betrothed, right, about to have a baby. She's pretty far along, and then some egomaniac wants to take a census, all right? How inconvenient. So you have to pack up. You got to take your very pregnant wife. I don't know if you guys have ever been with a very pregnant lady, but if you are married to a very pregnant lady, it's awesome. And I love it. All right, but you got to take your very, Tamara was awesome, by the way, during pregnancy. Just everybody know that. All right, that's what I'm saying right now. That is on record. Okay, that's my story. But he's taking his very pregnant wife. And you know what? Like if you were to go from, um, if you were to go from Nazareth today to Bethlehem, you could drive there in about a, an hour and 56 minutes. Okay. And do you know how long it took uh, if you were going to travel on foot or by donkey or whatever? Four days. They got to travel four days. You are going to take your pregnant wife, who could have a baby at any moment, on a four-day journey. What man wants to sign up for that? No one. What an inconvenient time that happens. And I say four days, but all of us know that if you have a very pregnant wife, what are we going to be doing? Bathroom break every five seconds. So who knows, really, resting. Who knows how long this really took for them to get there. But think about this. When you finally arrive, you're probably exhausted, okay? Like you didn't get it, like what happens on international flights. You know what I'm saying? Like you are exhausted. You've been walking this entire time. And when you arrive, you find out that the inn has no room for you. Like 
you know how like you're on the subway, if there's a pregnant lady standing up and you're like, hey, you go ahead and take my seat. Why that didn't happen, I have no idea. Like why they're showing up and then why somebody wasn't just like, oh man, yeah, you probably should have this room and, and I shouldn't, I have no idea. Nobody gave them a room. There was no room. Nobody was gonna let them into any kind of room and you somehow find a barn for your pregnant wife to sleep in. Imagine trying to convince your pregnant wife, it's not so bad, <laughs> right? That's difficult. Maybe, maybe, just maybe you think to yourself that you'll find a place that's kosher to stay in, hopefully, before she gives birth. But to your horror, she goes into labor while you're in a barn. So there you are. Your wife, betrothed, has just given birth, okay? Here you are in Bethlehem far away from home, in a barn, with your wife post-birth, and the Messiah that had been anticipated for centuries is in a feeding trough. Would you not feel like you are doing a horrible, horrible job at life? Yeah. Imagine this insane moment, but what is God doing? Because he could, again, he could have intervened in this whole thing. He could have said, there will be a room there. He could have made it happen. But all of that chaos, what is God doing? Well, he's using it just like he always does. He's using it. First of all, he's fulfilling prophecy. About 700 years earlier, God told Micah, and Micah prophesied in Micah 5.2, but you, O Bethlehem, it's right there up on the screen for you, but you, O Bethlehem, Epaphratha, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from old, from ancient of days." You see, the Messiah had always been prophesied that he was going to be born in Bethlehem. It just so happened that this egotistical person decides to do a census and everybody has to go back to their hometown at this exact moment that Jesus is going to be born. And that takes Joseph and Mary, because they're in the lineage of David, to Bethlehem. Something that had been prophesied 700 years before. Did they know it? I don't know. Did they see it coming? I have no idea. I would, I would think maybe. I mean, because soon whenever the wise men show up, you know, like a year later, whenever the wise men show up, they're like, hey, where's the kid? Because we know that he's supposed to be born in Bethlehem because the prophecy said so. So it's, it's known information, right? So it's pretty cool that God right there, through the chaos of having to leave and go do a census, and a four-day journey was fulfilling prophecy, but also, listen to this, God was also defining grace. Because think about this for a second. He was correcting the views that others had in regards to the Messiah and setting the tone for who he really was. You, th you see, everybody thought the Messiah was going to be somebody completely different than who he turned out to be. Everybody who was waiting for the Messiah thought he was gonna be a king 
in the sense of like a great mighty ruler with a palace and palace guards that he would come to release the Jewish nation from kind of the, the not necessarily bondage, but more of like the burden of Roman rule, right? That's what they thought he was going to do. And in reality, God wanted them to understand that that's not who Jesus was supposed to be. That's not who Jesus is going to be. The Messiah was coming with humility as a servant. That's who he was supposed to be the whole time. Philippians 2 verse 6 says this, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death even death on a cross. You see, Jesus' whole life is defined by humility. That's who he was supposed to be the whole time. He was born humble. He died humble. That's who Jesus was supposed to be. Being born in a manger shows the world that the Messiah is not some unapproachable king. He is accessible. It shows that he is available to everyone. God could have made it less chaotic, but he didn't. And sometimes in our chaos of life, God is using it to reveal grace. He's using it to define grace. Sometimes our chaotic moments are actually moments of grace. I can think of many times in my life where I felt like that I was failing, yet when I look back, I can see the Lord's grace through the whole thing, that he was revealing grace. I like what one person said in regards to this. They said, sometimes God chooses stables of desperation as the birthplaces of his overwhelming grace. It's an amazing thing. So another chaotic moment that the Lord led him through and allowed to happen. And, uh, and so far, Joseph is learning that following God is anything but peaceful. And uh, he's not done learning. There's one more thing uh, that I want to show you guys. And uh, not long after this, okay, uh, Jesus is probably around one uh, years old. And, um, and, and Mary and Joseph in, at this point have settled into Bethlehem. So they've been there about a year. And the reason why we kind of know this is because whenever um, the wise men show up, they're in a house. They're no longer in a barn. There's no stable. There's no like manger or anything. And so it's probably about a year later. There's some other things that's in the scriptures that we can kind of kind of guesstimate about how old, you know, Jesus is at this point. So it tells us they've been in Bethlehem about a year. Now, why didn't they, after Jesus was born, he had to be circumcised in Jerusalem, but like after he was, after all that was done, why didn't they go back home? Why didn't they go back to Nazareth? Why are they still in Bethlehem a year later? And the answer is, we don't know. Maybe because they were avoiding the reputation of being back in Nazareth. Maybe. We don't know, but all we know is they left where they used to live. They left everything behind. They end up in Bethlehem. And now if you've been there a year, what have you done? You've started to kind of build your life up. You start to, Joseph was a carpenter by trade. You start to have your business kind of drum back up. They've got to make money somehow. And you start to acquire things. You start to um, get friends. You start to build a life. That's kind of what happens whenever you're there. 
But one day, they kind of get a surprise visit from some wise men, all right? And, uh, and before these wise, if you guys remember the story, um, before these wise men show up, who did they go visit first and ask? Herod, right? Herod, real nice guy. And uh, anyways, they show up and they're like, hey, Herod, uh, you know, where's the Messiah? And he's like, what are you talking about? And they're like, well, you know, the prophecy, like he's, we saw the star, he's going to be born in Bethlehem. We want to go and we want to worship him. Well, Herod, who's crazy, is like, nobody should be worshiped more than me. Nobody should even be worshiped except for me. And so Herod had this idea. He was like, hey, why don't you tell me uh, when you find him? Because I want to go worship him too. But what was his plan all along? Was to kill him, Right? And so these wise men show up and, uh, and, and they're there um, at, uh, at the house knowing they, and then the Lord shows them that that's going to happen. And so they actually escape and they kind of foil his plans, uh, Pilate's plans, but really it was the Lord foiling, foiling it the whole time. And then look at what happens though, this, this final chaotic moment in Joseph's life, Matthew 2, verse 13 to 15, it says this, now when they had departed, that's the wise men, departed from the house. Behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. I'm sure Joseph was like, oh no. And said, rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt. Egypt. And remain there until I tell you. For Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet out of Egypt, I called my son. So here they are again, leaving everything behind. And it wasn't like one of those moments. It was like, oh, let's take a few days and pack. Let's take a few days and figure this out. It was a moment where it was like, we have to go and we have to go now. We have to leave everything behind that we've acquired for this last year. Every business that we've acquired for the past year, everything for the past year, we have to leave and we have to go right now. It doesn't show us that chaotic moment, but you know it's there. You know this insane moment is there. So they drop everything, fleeing for their lives, their friends, their house, business, everything, and they flee to a land Think about this, that isn't even their land. Like it's not even a land of their own culture. It's not a land of their own people. And here's the other thing, how long are they going to be there? They don't know whenever they say yes and they just leave. They have no, long, they have no idea how long that they're supposed to be there. But Herod, when he realizes that the wise men tricked him by going home another way, his anger got the best of him and the story goes that you read in the scripture there is that Herod in his anger killed every male child under the age of two in and around Bethlehem. That's what he did. Here's my final point. Sometimes God uses chaotic moments in our lives to protect his greater purpose and will. Are we okay with being used by God that way? Are we okay with being used by God and allowing moments in our lives of chaos so that his will will be accomplished? And, and let me just tell you about his will because uh, Romans 12, 2 says something about his will. It says that it is good, pleasing, and perfect. Are you and I willing to be used 
by God? Are we willing to allow chaos into our lives so that God's greater purpose can be used, can, can, can be accomplished? That's not an easy prayer to pray because guys, none of us want chaos in our lives. There's not a one of us that are like, Lord, I'll take some more chaos. Can you just bring some conflict and things in my life? It's way too peaceful over here. Nobody, nobody's praying that. Nobody's saying that. But are we willing to at least be okay with that? If God didn't cause chaos in Joseph's life in that moment, Jesus would have been killed. And we'd still be dead in our sins if he allowed that to happen. So it's possible that what is happening, that thing that's out of your control, that seems incredibly inconvenient or it seems incredibly difficult or painful is well within God's control and it's working out his incredible plans. Guys, are, are, can we have that much faith that the Lord is that good? Can we have that much faith that, that we can trust him that he is working out something that is way bigger than we could ever imagine for our lives. You see, we're only stuck in the moment. Every time we're going through something, we're stuck in the moment. But what if we broadened our view of everything? And I'm not talking about consequences for your mistakes, all right? Those are your fault. But what I am talking about is those moments where you're seeking the Lord and just these things, whatever it is, these chaotic moments in life. Like, can we look at God in those moments and go, I'm just glad to be used by you. But whatever your purpose is, whatever your plan is, I'm just glad to be used by you. Joseph, it was a mess. Like his life was a mess. And, and guys, sometimes our lives are a mess. In fact, a lot of time, our lives are a mess. So where's the peace? Where's the peace, right? Because this is supposed to be a message on peace. Where's the peace? Because I just told you guys, expect a lot of chaos. We were supposed to talk about peace today. But did you catch the undertones of peace amidst all that was going on? Here's two things that, are, that, that coexist when you look in scripture. Number one, chaos. It's inevitable. Like you can listen to some preachers and they might tell you that, um, that life will, is gonna be awesome if you follow Jesus and you won't ever experience any hardships or you can read the Bible. <laughs> and then you can see in the scriptures that, oh, actually, if they killed Jesus, what makes me think I'm going to just fly by, right? And, and everything's going to be okay. Like, that's inevitable. Chaos is going to be inevitable in our lives. It's, it's a result of living in a fallen world. It's a result of following after Jesus in a world that rejects what Jesus stands for, for a lot of the most part. Following Christ leads to chaotic moments that don't make sense, moments that hurt, moments that are difficult, moments that are uncomfortable, moments that are stressful and frightening, moments that are expensive when you live in New York City. <laughs> Love it. But here's the thing. At the same time, these two things coexist. Chaos, but at the same time, listed among the fruits of the Spirit is peace. We are given the Holy Spirit. What does the Holy Spirit produce in our lives? 
love, joy, peace, along with patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control. Peace is a fruit of the Holy Spirit in our lives. We can have, are you catching this? We can have chaos and peace at the same time. At the exact same time, the definition of peace in the eyes of the world is the absence of conflict. If you look it up in the dictionary, it says peace is the absence of conflict. It's freedom from disturbance. It's tranquility. That's what, that's what the world says that peace is. But as we know and exemplified through Joseph, it's unavoidable. The key to finding peace is not avoiding chaos it's finding it in the midst of it, all right? Where is peace found? It's found in trusting God. It's that scripture that we prayed through earlier in Isaiah. It's by staying on him. It's by trusting in him. That's where we find our chaos, in, or that's where we find our peace, in the middle of the chaos. Joseph, who was a righteous man, had a life that was anything but peaceful, but Joseph was at peace because his faith, which led to his righteousness, also led to his trust in the Lord. Guys, that's where peace is found. It's found in our trust with the Lord. So here's, as simply as I can put it, and you guys can write this down if you want. I'll put it on the screen for you. Peace is the ability to rest amidst chaos with the calm assurance and trust that God is in control and doing what is best. That's it. That's it. That's, that's something that we need to wake up every single morning because every single morning is going to be, there's going to be chaos that day. You can bet on it. You're going to wake up. I don't care if you're just sitting in your house, something's going to happen. Okay. Chaos is just part of life, but can we rest amidst it with the calm assurance and trust that God is in control? And he's doing what is best. If we could just, if we, if we could just every morning wake up and pray that and say, God, I trust you. I trust that what you're doing is best. And I trust that you are in control. And so whatever comes into my life today, I trust you. Thank you for listening. For more information about our church, please visit our website at hopecommunitynyc.com.